Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Ostad about the new book, Methuselah Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. Stories of long-lived animal species, from 1,000-year-old tube worms to 400-year-old sharks, and what they might uh, might teach us about human health and longevity. Well, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So can you tell us, what do you do? What do I do professionally? Uh, yes. Or what do I do? So I'm a professor. I am uh, what's called a, a distinguished professor at the University of Alabama uh, at Birmingham in the States. And I just was awarded an endowed chair in healthy aging research, which means that I have a little bit of money from a private source to pursue topics that projects that that I don't have federal funding for. So it's a, it, it's a nice little um, uh, gift that I got. So I'm very pleased about that. Oh, congratulations on that. Thank you. So how did you choose the field that you study? What led you to it? Huh. That is a really complicated question, much more complicated for me than probably for most academics that you interview. So my undergraduate degree is actually in English literature. So I never thought that I would be a scientist. And um, I ended up, I, I thought I would be a novelist. I thought I would be a great novelist. The only, and I spent a number of years discovering that I had no talent in that area. <laughs> um, but while I was writing the great American novel, I was, had a variety of, of unusual jobs the last one of which was training lions for the uh, movie business in Hollywood. And I did that for a little over three years, and that really awakened my interest in animals. Uh, I'd I'd really always had an interest. I just didn't realize how deep it was. I'd always had pets. Uh, I liked to go out in the woods. When I was in high school, I belonged to a club that went out and caught rattlesnakes in the desert. Um, But... This three years being around animals, eight, 10 hours a day training them really convinced me that I wanted to do something for the rest of my life with animals. And so I went back to school and I got a biology degree and I really wanted to study lions in the wild. That's what I was expecting to do in graduate school. But uh, life throws strange things at you. I, I ended up not taking over the lion project that I thought I was. I did a very different kind of animal behavior project, and it had to do with trying to understand animal combat, when animals fought, when they, when one gave up. You know, there are these territorial encounters that quite often are very much ritualized, and so animals will sit there and display at one another, and you'll think they're going to kill one another, and then one will abruptly give up and walk away. That probably describes most animal uh, uh, combat situations in the wild. And I was interested in trying to figure out how that worked. 
But what really got me into aging research, where I've been now for almost 40 years, is that I was doing a field project uh, in, as a postdoc in southern in South America, in the grasslands of Venezuela, and I wasn't doing anything on aging. I was doing something on bird social behavior. But a friend of mine convinced me to start a study of opossums with him. Now, the, the study was actually my idea because my poor friend had been trying to do a study of foxes, but he couldn't catch any foxes because his traps kept getting filled up with opossums. <laughs> and so I said, you should really be studying the animal that you can catch. And he said, well, what can we do uh, with that? And so we put our heads together, came up with a project that we could do on a, with opossums. Opossums are marsupials. And so when they have their young, their long, young are just about the size of a large ant when they're born and when they first show up in the pouch. So the project that we had uh, arranged was really one to look at were there certain ecological factors that determine whether uh, a pouch full of young, and, and opossums usually have about seven or eight young in the pouch, is mostly male or mostly female. That was the project, again, having nothing to do with aging. But in the course of doing that project, I had to recapture the animals every month. So I had radios on all of them. And so once a month, I would go find them, I would capture them, I would look in their pouch, count the young, see if they were males or females. What I happened to notice when I was doing this is that within a very few months, an opossum could go from being in the prime of adult vigor to being old and ancient and decrepit, having cataracts, having lost all kinds of muscle mass, having parasites, um, limping, um, apparently seeing even worse than they did. So, so a, a lot of things made me realize that these things aged much more quickly than I would have ever anticipated. Uh, opossums are about the size of a house cat, so I assumed that like a house cat, they would live 10 or 15 years in the wild. Um, but in fact, they lived about two years, even a little less than two years on average. And that awakened an interest that I had already in why are animals of different sizes tend to have different longevities? And then why are these dramatic departures from it? So I got interested in that question and I've been interested in that question ever since. Um, in my early scientific career, every time I felt like I had sort of solved the problem I was looking at, I would lose interest in it. Uh, but the aging problem is very, very complex and uh, has many, many levels, and it's kept my interest now uh, for 30 years. And throughout your career journey, did you have mentors that were very supportive of you? I did. My PhD mentor was uh, an ecologist, but had been trained as a physicist. And so for a while when I was in college, I was actually a, a mathematics major before I changed to English. And so I had this, yeah. I had these certain quantitative skills and he really encouraged me to develop those. And so actually for the project that I did my PhD on for trying to understand combat, I was actually evaluating game theory models. But the thing he did, I think, that was best is he just, he, he let me do what I want. I didn't have to work on a project that he was working on. 
And the other thing is he would listen very, very carefully. When I would come up with an idea, we met weekly. I would come in, I'm searching around, my lion project is not working, I'm having ideas. And he would listen very, very carefully. No matter how crazy the idea was, he would listen very carefully and give me good feedback on it. And um, I've, I've tried to run my lab kind of like that since, since I left him in that, you know, there are some laboratories, particularly in biomedical fields, where um, projects are funded by the government, they need to be completed, where graduate students are basically working on grants that their mentor um, got funded. Mm. In ecology, the funds were so trivial that this was not an issue. So you could do pretty much you, what you wanted. And so I have had people in my, uh, in my laboratory that have studied uh, how fig trees uh, get established, who have studied um, um, animal pollinators uh, or fruit dispersers in New Guinea versus um, Australia versus um, Indonesia. I've had other students that have worked on uh, birds returning to the area that they were born. So I've had my students have done a large range of things. But in recent years, again, because now I'm enmeshed in the whole biomedical aspect of aging, um, I've really had to have my students at least do part of their project on something that I have funded. So students have a little bit less autonomy, but if they have any kind of crazy idea, I like to, I like to let them pursue that. The whole bit of work that I, that I did with a, a clam that lives 500 years old was really done primarily by a graduate student who had a succession of interesting ideas about what do you do with a clam that you know lives 500 years. Wow, you have such a wide variety of different degrees and fields that you worked in and studied and uh, as, I, as I can hear, I really enjoyed as well. So as a mentor, what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers that can be interested in something different to what they do now? I would say the main thing I would say to students, don't think because you've done your PhD on project X, that you always have to continue something related to that. You could really change and do anything you want if you're willing to, to put in the work. So my PhD research, when I was testing these models about animal combats, I was using small spiders as animal models to test that. Now I had no interest in spiders whatsoever, except as a tool to test these ideas and they had certain features that made them very good for doing that. But I was really quite concerned that I would become stereotyped as a spider biologist, something that I definitely did not want to do. Um, but I discovered, no, if you want to go and study bird ecology, you can do it. If you want to go study mammalian aging, you can do it. The important thing when you do this is that you have to put in the work. Because when I got into aging research, because I came from a background in evolution and ecology and zoology, I figured I had to know the literature better than the people that were already in the field. Otherwise, they weren't going to take me seriously. So I spent a great deal of time learning a field before I uh, ever really started doing much in it. 
So, uh, but but I, I guess the main lesson to students is don't feel like you're trapped in something just because you started or just because you finished a project. And if it if it doesn't continue to hold your interest, then feel free to find something that does. Interestingly, my opossum project we were funded for, the one that I'd be interested in aging that had nothing to do with aging, eventually was published in Nature. So one of the most prestigious journals in, in the world, by the time it came out, I completely lost interest in that project mm-hmm. and, that, and, and that whole field and it moved on to aging. So that just shows that at least I've been willing to move in directions that interest me, no matter what they were. And I think it's probably a good thing for students to have in the back of their mind that that's at least a possibility. So your latest book is Methuselah's Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer, Healthier Lives. So how did you come to writing it? Well, I've, because of my background in English literature, I've always enjoyed writing and I've always enjoyed writing for the general public. Um, when I write scientific papers, I often feel like I'm writing with, with a steel suit on because I just don't have the flexibility. In fact, I remember early in my career, um, in basically putting a metaphor in a paper and having the editor just hate that metaphor. So I've, I've always, since graduate school, I've, I've been interested in communicating the, the, the wonders of science to the lay public. And so this is actually my fourth book um, that I've written. And this one is really the one that I've been wanting to write for a long time. Because coming from a background like mine, where I've studied birds and spiders and mammals and, and, and fish and clams and all, I've always thought that it's kind of ironic that the biomedical field has sort of reduced all the grand diversity of nature into about three species. That's pretty much all they study. They study this worm C. elegans and Drosophila fruit flies and mice. You know, mice have become the face of all 5,000 mammalian species for most biomedical researchers. And I've always thought that was short-sighted and I've been wanting to point that out again and again and again and again. And I finally decided that writing a book <coughs> where I march through all the animals that have exceptional longevity and animals that are closely related to human and pointing out what we could potentially learn from them, learn from animals that are actually more successful at aging than humans are. This would be for me both to um, expose my wonder at the natural world, but at the same time, make an argument to biomedical researchers that there's more to life than worms and mice and flies. All right, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with us with humans? So what do we know about human longevity and aging? Well, what we know is that there is, (laughs) we know know more than we think we know. So we have the birth and death dates, very solid birth and death rates for billions of people now, right? So we have a very good grip on how long people survive in specific environments. And we also have a pretty good idea about how long people can live at the maximum. And that tends to be where people are focused. But the other thing I learned in writing this book is how much 
bad information is out there about human longevity and animal longevity, uh, both of those. So the oldest person that we know of that's got a valid birth and death credentials is Jean Camont of France, who lived 122 years, 164 days. But there are stories out there all over the place of uh, people who lived 130, 140, 150, 60. I think 160s is about as old as I've heard. Um, and there's a there's a curious thing that happens to people. We have a at least in the developed world, we have kind of a youth culture. You know, people don't like getting old, and mm. sometimes they'll lie about their age. You know, spending the years in Hollywood that I did. Almost everybody lies about their age there. But something strange happens when people get old enough. Suddenly it becomes a status symbol to be older rather than younger. So then they start exaggerating their age. And so it turns out that for, for people that live over 100 years, for most countries in the world, we don't know how many of those are valid. There are countries that have had good birth records for 250 years, but that's very, very few. And for instance, in an earlier book I did, uh, I, I found out that you're likely to live to be 100 years old, according to official records, uh, if you lived in Argentina or Chile in 1900, than if you lived in Japan, which is the longest live country in the world today, in 2020. And that, of course, cannot be true, but what happened is that there was just a lot of age exaggeration, poor birth records. Um, and I guess for human longevity, the, the thing that I really like to point out is that don't believe everything you hear. Just because somebody says this person is 130 years old, be skeptical. There have been some very clever people and fooled by this. One of them, whom I knew uh, briefly when I was at Harvard, is Alexander Leaf. A physician who in the 1970s was given a grant by the National Geographic Society to visit places in the world. I guess these places would be called blue zones today, uh, where people need to live an exceptional, exceptionally long lives. One of them was in South America and Ecuador. One was in what's today Pakistan. And one of them was in the Soviet Union. And he visited all these three places and, and, and reported what they told him. You know, in South America, they lived up into their late 120s. And in uh, Pakistan, they lived into their, into their hundreds very, very frequently. And in Russia, there are reports of them living into their 160s. <laughs> now, eventually, he realized that he was being foxed. Um, the first... <laughs> The first guess was when he went back to this village in, in Ecuador, uh, two years after a man had told him he was 125 years old and he ran into the same man again, and now he told him he was 136 years old. <laughs> so he got the hint that maybe Steen was amiss here. And later, actually, some anthropologists who knew a lot about how to determine the age of, uh, uh, of people with poor birth records went actually dug into the church records, discovered that what happened was when people had a child die, or a young person die, they would often name the next child with exactly the same name. 
And so by confusing the birth records, you could actually find people that were 120, 130 years old. What they found was that the average age of the people that said they were over 100 was 78 years. So we found that again and again and again. And so for both human records and animal records, it, it always pays to, to be skeptical and to want to see the evidence. Right now, I would say the best way to live to be very, very old uh, is to live in a place that has poor birth records. So you already mentioned uh, one of the methods that you can use to understand the um, age, age span, I suppose, uh, uh, of people. So what other methods can you use to study both in humans and animals? So in humans and animals, a really interesting way to look at longevity is, so biological age, the ability to predict, if a, let's say you have two people that are 40 years old um, and you have no idea how old each one of they will live to be, but maybe we'll just make up an example. One is destined to live hundreds and one is destined to die at 70. Right now, we don't have very good ways of determining which of those people is which. It would be very, very difficult to do. We're working on a lot of new molecular techniques for trying to uh, figure that out. But, but we don't know. But if you, if you have a group of people, a very interesting way to, to look at their aging is say, how fast does the probability of dying increase with age? That is, if you have 100,000 30-year-olds, what is the, how many of them are likely to die in the next year? It's a very small number, as you might imagine. 100,000 40-year-olds, how many are likely to die in the next year? It's still a pretty small number, but it's a bigger number. And you can actually um, plot this relationship between the probability of surviving another year and age. And it turns out that the probability of dying in the next year increases from about the age of 30 at a very steady rate. It doubles every eight years. So at 38, you're twice as likely to die as you were at 30. At uh, 46, you're four times as likely to die as you were at 30. And you can see that this gets to very large numbers very rapidly. The interesting thing about this increase in mortality is that if you put people in different environments, the absolute level of mortality can go down if it's a very, very healthy environment, let's say. Or if it's a very, very unhealthy environment, for instance, people have looked at survival in prisoner of war camps during wars, and what they found is pretty much the same eight-year doubling of, of uh, mortality, but it's just much higher. So this seems to be a pretty fundamental feature of human biology that we have about a seven or eight-year period where our probability of dying doubles, and it doubles, quadruples. In other words, this is a, this is a power law, so things get very, very uh, high pretty quickly. Um, if you actually had graphed it, a, a linear graph where you had age and probability, you'd see it stayed very, very low. And then at about age 60, it starts to move up, and then it gets to very high by age 90. So that's an interesting way of looking at aging. And we can do that, of course, with animals as well. 
the difference with animals is we typically study, you know, 50 or 100 animals, maybe 200 at the most if we're studying something like fruit flies at a time. Whereas for humans, we typically study millions of people at a time. So we can tell a lot more about these details. And one of the more interesting details is the fact that women survive better than men under virtually any condition. So what can animals and insects, and especially the uh, more unusual animals and insects that are being used uh, in the laboratories can really tell us about the aging and lifespan, for example, about biology, about behaviors or environment? Yeah, so uh, so this is, this is where I think the main point of the book is that uh, we have chosen animals to use in the laboratory that are demonstrably unsuccessful at aging. The fundamental processes of life are damaging. And different animals combat damage to different degrees of success. We're pretty good. You know, we're the longest live mammal that lives on the ground. Um, but there are animals that combat these things much better than we do. And what we could really learn from is probably animals that do things better than we do. Let me just give you an example of, of, of an animal that I find very interesting. There are some ants uh, that the queen of this colony lives 30 times longer than the workers. Now, the workers are all the daughters of the queen, uh, and they have the same genes that the queen has. But yet, the queen lives 30 times longer. This, by the way, would be like a family of humans where most everybody lives 70 to 90 years, kind of the range that most of us will live to. But occasionally, there's one that lives 2,000 years. You know, that would just be totally crazy. And if we found that, we would be, we would really want to know what's the difference? How does that one live so much longer? Well, that's exactly the situation that we're in with the ants. And so that's a kind of thing that I think aging researchers ought to be more interested in. Can we, if we can figure this out, if we can figure out how does an ant queen live 30 times longer than genetically identical workers, is there anything that we can learn about human health and longevity? Maybe not. We don't know. Maybe things work differently in insects, but we certainly won't know until we find out. As long as we're studying things that are unsuccessful at aging, we really have no reason to suspect that if we make them slightly less unsuccessful, let's say we take a mouse that lives two years and we discover drugs or diets um, that, make it, that allow it to live three years, it's an enormous leap of faith to assume that humans who already live 70 or 80 years are going to benefit from the same processes. It's quite likely that whatever processes are killing the mouse are processes that we've been found ways to combat very, very successfully long ago. So I think that we really should be looking for animals that do some aspect of aging more successfully than people do. And there are lots of them. 
you know, we live longer than any terrestrial mammal, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we age more slowly than any terrestrial animal. I could explain that if, you, if you've got a minute for me to do that. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, like everyone knows intuitively that small animals are shorter alive than large animals on average, right? So, no one's surprised that a dog lives longer than a mouse or that a horse lives longer than a dog or that an elephant lives longer than a horse. We just assume that that's going to be the case. In fact, it was that relationship that got my attention with the opossum. It's the size of a house cat. Why isn't living like a house cat? Well, we know pretty much why that happens. And it has to do with the rate at which these various animals use energy. You know, they do everything. Life flickers by very, very fast for a small animal. They, they grow faster, they reach maturity faster, their heart beats faster, they breathe faster, their muscles twitch faster. They replace all their cells faster. Pretty much anything that we can measure, they do faster. And they die younger. And dogs do those things slightly slower than mice, but faster than horses. And we can sort of line everything up like this. In fact, this kind of relationship where increasingly large animals live longer than smaller animals, not just true of mammals, it's also true of birds. So crows live longer than sparrows and eagles live longer than crows. It's also true of salamanders. It's true of clams. It's true of reptiles. It's one of the most robust patterns in nature. These are only trends, they're not rules, because there are some major exceptions from all of these things. We're kind of an exception. We live about four and a half times longer than you would predict we should live for things that are the same size as we are. Something that's the same size as we are would say be uh, an American mountain lion. Uh, but yet it only lives to its 20s, doesn't live to 80, 90 years. So it's those ones that are exceptional that I think are the ones that we should be studying. And there's a few that just stick out. One of them has already had some naked mole rats, for instance. Mm. So naked mole rat uh, came to attention really in the 1970s. I suspect many of the listeners have seen naked mole rats because they've become pretty popular exhibits at science museums and zoos and all because they live in colonies. They live in large colonies kind of like ants. Uh, there's a queen that does the reproduction. There may be several kings. And then there are a whole bunch of workers. And the naked mole rats live underground uh, around the equator. It turns out, years ago, when I first got into aging research, and I learned about the naked mole rat, and the fact that they have this social system that sounds so much like an ant colony or a beehive, I got curious as to whether the queens live longer. And I actually contacted the person in South Africa who had discovered their social system. And I said, do the queens live longer than the, than the workers? And if so, how much longer? And she told me, yeah, the queens live up to 17 years and the workers only live a couple of years. And so I, I got interested in from that perspective right away. Now, it turns out that one of her students, um, Rochelle Buffenstein, got really, really interested in it, went out in the field with her, brought them into the lab, and eventually brought them to the United States. Now they're used in probably a half dozen 
labs here for their aging. And it turns out that the 17 years was a gross underestimate about how long they live. I think that's about as long as, as she had kept them at the time. Now the oldest ones, and remember these are the size of a mouse, uh, are, are living as long as 39 years in the laboratory. And it turns out that there's not a difference in the longevity between the queen and the workers, at least in the laboratory. In the field, there probably still seems to be. Um, but yet, they live 10 times as long as a mouse, more than 10 times as long as a mouse. Seemingly, they're very physiologically different. And one of the things that's been discovered is that they very rarely get cancer, almost never. Now, mice are one of the most cancer-prone animals we know. You know, a typical mouse colony, uh, 50 to 90 percent will die of cancer. Naked mole rats, on the other hand, almost never die of cancer. We've done enough, we meaning the field, has done enough autopsies on enough recently dead naked mole rats to know that. So the question is, is there something that we can learn about preventing cancer from the naked mole rat? And some recent work suggests that there may be, they may produce something that's very effective at preventing the development of cancer. That's the kind of thing that I think opening up, breaking open the bestiary animals that we study for aging uh, can lead us to. You make a very interesting point uh, that we should be looking at the animals in their normal environment under normal conditions that we used to, rather than looking at laboratory animals or even zoo animals. Why is that? Well, I, yeah, that's a good point. I think we, the benefit of looking at animals in their natural environment is that it allows you to see what they really do well, things that you would never know in uh, in the laboratory. Uh, let me just give you an example for that. The longest live mammals, if you calculate how long they live relative to their body size, the longest live mammals by far are the bats. Some bats that are a quarter size of a mouse can live up to 40 years in the wild. Now, think about what that bat had to do. It's, 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 it's tiny. It's had to avoid predators. It's had to avoid climatic problems, droughts and storms. It's had to avoid dying from infectious diseases. It's had to avoid um, starving to death. These tiny bats like this need to catch an insect prey every few seconds while they're foraging in order to not starve to death. Not only that, they might fly 80 kilometers in a night and then they have to find their way back to their roost. If it's a female, she has to go back and find where she left her pup. So she has to go find her way back from 80 kilometers away back to where she roosted. And then maybe there's 20,000 bats roosting in the same place. She has to find her young. So what we just found out from that, from what I described is, first of all, um, bats are very, very good at maintaining their spatial memory something that's one of the first things to go in people. They're also very, very good at preserving their hearing because the way that they hunt is with echolocation. That is, they scream in these very high ultrasonic pitches 
And then they listen for the echoes. And the way those echoes bounce off certain things tell them where their prey is. And that's, they have to have the endurance to fly 80 kilometers a night to chase prey that's trying to elude them, to be agile enough to pluck it out of the air. So we've learned that they have this preservation. And by the way, preserving ultra high frequency hearing for 40 years is something that humans can't do. We have lost our high frequency hearing by the time we're 20, it has started to go. By the time we're 30, uh, it's, it's really gone. And by the time we're 60, uh, our high frequency hearing is pretty much uh, non-existent. In fact, uh, I have a habit in when I teach aging uh, to show this to students by getting a standardized instrument that will play a tone of a certain pitch at a certain volume. And I will gradually increase the pitch until I can't hear it anymore. Uh, and then I can increase the volume until the students are holding their ears and begging me to stop. And I have no conception. I can't hear it at all. Well, bats can preserve that high frequency hearing for decade after decade after decade. The other thing we learn, again, because we study them in the wild, and uh, is that they can recover from activity virtually instantly. If you think about it, if somebody um, needs best rest, if they have a major surgery in the hospital and they can't get out of bed for a couple of weeks, or astronauts that are in microgravity where they have very little opportunity uh, to move around unless they have exercise equipment, which they do, by the way, um, we muscle mass such that you see, you've seen pictures of astronauts when their capsule lands in the water having trouble getting out and, and simply walking to the vehicle that's going to take them away. And these are, of course, men and women that are very, very fit. Older people quite often need help walking after a week in bed. That's hibernate for six to nine months, and then they wake up and they fly away. So how do they do that? How do they preserve that muscle strength and endurance that allows them to do that after basically being inactive for nine months? Those are a whole variety of things that we could learn potentially and some of them may be relevant to humans. Some of them, it may, bats may have things that there's no way to translate, but we'll never know unless we go out in the field and study them. Same thing with birds. Uh, birds as a group are really long live. They live about three times as long in the wild as a same size mammal would live in all the safety of a laboratory. Um, and they do it despite flying great distances. One of the longest live birds is an ocean bird called a Manx shearwater. And the oldest one of these is, it's about the size of a rat. And the oldest one of these has lived 55 years in the wild. And an ornithologist calculated that because these birds migrate every year from the North Atlantic around the UK to the coast of uh, Brazil and Argentina, that a 50-year-old Manx Shearwater in its life will have flown at least 5 million miles. Uh, that, level, uh, that level of activity, and they, they tend to stay active mm. to the very, very end. This is the other reason of studying animals in the wild. To survive in the wild, animals have to maintain a very high level of physical 
fitness and mental fitness. And so what birds and bats are showing us is how to stay healthy for a long time, not just to live a long time, but how to stay healthy a long time. And that, after all, is what most people are after. If you ask most people, would you like to live to be 120, 130 years old? Because I've done this quite a bit. <laughs> I'll tell you no. And that's because they're imagining, well, let's see, I know the 90-year-olds that I know and the 100-year-olds I know, if they know any, are really, really decrepit. And they're thinking, would I like to be that decrepit, only getting worse for another couple of decades? And almost everybody thinks, no, that's the last thing I want. On the other hand, if you say, well, how would you like to have the health you have now 50 years from now? Mm. Or in the next 50 years, you would still have the health, the health you would have in 50 years is the health you would have today in 20 years. And people are for that. And so that's really the goal of the research. And that's really where studying animals in the wild, I think, can give us the most tips on how to stay healthy later in life, not how to just stay alive. So then thinking about the translational value of uh, the research in animals, what are some of the important and exciting discoveries that um, have been made throughout our time studying animals that we can actually apply to humans? Well, today there, to date, there's been very little done with longevity, but there's been quite a bit done uh, with diseases. Uh, particularly using animals that are venomous, using that venom for various purposes. Uh, for instance, uh, venom that's administered to uh, prevent heart attacks. Uh, there are spider venoms that are used to treat stroke. Um, there are painkillers, believe it or not, that are made from the venom of cone snails. And so we found a number of ways to use animal venoms in a way that benefit humans. We just haven't focused our attention yet on, on aging. Um, like I say, though, there are these things coming out, like the, what's being discovered about cancer prevention in naked mole rats that may turn out to be very, very, very exciting. We've used the plant world for this for a long time, right? And the... Uh, and the bacterial world for this for a long time. Um, there are lots of, of, of cancer drugs that came originally from plants. Uh, the most popular drug to treat later life diabetes, metformin, came from a plant. But there's also these things from animals that we're just starting to discover. Most of them have really been uh, in venoms. And the idea is here, and this is an important concept. I like, to, I like to summarize it by saying nature is smarter than we are. Nature has had billions of years and billions of species with which to experiment on how to combat the damaging effects of aging. And it makes sense with those billions and billions of ongoing experiments that evolution is doing. They will have come up with some solutions that we would never think of. That's why the chemical companies, the pharmaceutical companies used to send people out into the field in droves to look at animals of various types to see if they had anything in them 
whether starfish, for instance, had potential cancer-fighting drugs in them. Uh, they used to send these animal, people out all the time. That's sort of fallen out of fashion, even though most of the drugs we have started out as plant or animal compounds that we brought into the lab and we've tinkered with them, let's say, to make them last longer, to try to get rid of a side effect that they may have had. Um, one of the interesting things is, as we're finding more and more, let's say, painkillers, uh, natural painkillers that are in the field, and, and like I say, one of these uh, has come from rattlesnakes, these painkillers don't have withdrawal symptoms like a lot of the opiates do. So there's another reason that we can, again, prospect in the natural world for things that help us medically. And in particular, I'm interested in things that can help us aid more successfully. So what are the avenues for the future you would like us to see explore? Well, I think there's a, well, we, we, there's virtually no studies of how bats do the various things that I've had. One of the things that I think is, is out there is there are many, many bird species that are really successful at aging. The, the, the most obvious one is a bird called the house sparrow. This is the most common bird in the world. It's everywhere. It's in Europe and Asia, America, Australia, South America, every place but Antarctica. It's about the same size as a mouse. And while a mouse will live a year, maybe at the most, in the wild, a house sparrow will live up to 20 years in the wild. Now, it does this despite the fact that it has a body temperature that would be of severe fever in humans. That body temperatures are around um, 41, 42 degrees. Um, they have levels of glucose in their blood that would be diabetic if we were a human. And they have a energy processing rate of metabolism about as twice as high as a mouse's. All those things would suggest they should be short-lived, not long-lived. Most animals, that would make them short-lived. But in fact, they can live 20 times as long in the wild as a mouse does in the field. I think what we need is we need to focus on a few key species from these diverse, group, diverse groups try to figure out what do they do that's special? How do they maintain those muscles? How do they combat that high level of uh, glucose in the blood without it damaging their vessels like, like it does to us? Um, so I think that where we really need to go is again, to open up the bestiary, choose a couple of birds, a couple of bats, really go into the naked mole rats and some of the relatives of the naked mole rats, which also seem to be uh, exceptionally long life. Maybe look into some of the really long lives in the ocean. We've been a lot less with them because they're not so easy to work with. But for instance, I worked with a clam that lives over 500 years. And the interesting thing about that clam is that it seems to contain a substance that could have to be a preventative for Alzheimer's disease. And the thing that makes this so ironic is that this clam does not even have a brain. Hmm. It has a heart, but it doesn't have a brain. So let me explain to you about that, because that kind of gets attention. So I got into this uh, when some marine biologists phoned me. I had this reputation as the person that studies the unusual animals for, the, for aging. 
And they said, we study these clams and they live a really long time. And I said, okay, what's a really long time? And they said, centuries. And I said, centuries? They said, yeah, four or 500 years. And I held the phone away from my head. I said, I'm sorry, I think we have a bad connection. They were calling from UK. Um, I thought you said 500 years. They go, yes, we did. <laughs> and so they said, would you like to collaborate? So we started this collaboration. And one of the things we discovered is that they have this substance in their tissues that seems to prevent proteins from misfolding. Now that sounds almost trivial. What does that matter? Well, proteins that run basically all the processes in our bodies can only successfully perform those processes when they're very, very precisely folded. Kind of like the most extreme origami you've ever seen. And it turns out that a lot of things going on inside a cell are damaging that protein. And when that protein gets damaged, it starts to misfold, starts to unfold. And the parts that were on the inside start to show up on the outside and it turns out they're sticky. And when that starts to happen, various proteins will start to stick together. And the next thing you know, you have an aggregation, a clump of proteins. Now, Alzheimer's disease is due to a clump of proteins. Um, Parkinson's disease is due to a clump of proteins. So we did a whole variety of experiments seeing whether the contents of these clam cells could actually prevent protein folding. Initially, we just did it with a standard protein that we got out of anywhere. And then we thought, well, any standard protein might, be, might not be telling us something. What if we use one of the proteins that people think are critical for Alzheimer's disease? So we took one of those proteins and we put it in the cam, in the clam lysate, and we put it in the human, you know, the juice from the human cells. And we saw which one of these, now we're gonna apply a stress that is designed to make proteins misfold, which one of these is gonna do it better? And it turned out that the clam juice, I'll call it, uh, prevented the misfolding and the aggregation of these proteins much better than the human uh, uh, juice did. So there's something in there that really seems to be able to pre either prevent misfolding or to help the proteins refold if they get misfolded. Now, I'd like to say now that, yes, and now I have a company and we have this drug in process for treating Alzheimer's disease, and none of that would be true, because we've been studying this now for seven years, and I can tell you many, many things that aren't responsible for it. All of the things that you would have guessed from what we know from our standard animals are involved in protein folding and misfolding. We've evaluated all of those things and none of them seems to be the answer. So we seem to have something brand new here um, that hopefully one day we'll figure out what it is and then we'll figure out how we might use that to help prevent Alzheimer's disease because that's a disease that uh, is, is currently uh, devastating our health system and is going to devastate it much worse in the future. Yeah, that is super exciting. 
And uh, just thinking about the bigger picture, I suppose, um, so something that you alluded to, when we think about our society and longevity and aging, how important is it for us to think about the mechanisms of aging, but also taking into account other things like social status and stuff like this? Yes, and, and, and actually the size itself tends to get overlooked. But here's a simple thought expression. To, to show why we really ought to be thinking about size a lot more. Um, any cell in your body has the potential to transform and to ultimately become cancerous and kill you. You know, it might take a bunch of cell divisions to get there, but any cell is at risk in your body of doing this. A lot of them have smaller risk than others, but still any cell. Now, if you think about comparing us to let's say an elephant, you know, an elephant weighs roughly speaking hundred times more than we do. Um, that means they have roughly a hundred times as many cells as we do. And yet they live almost as long as we do. So from what we know, if that elephant were composed of human cells, they would all get cancer probably in their 20s or 30s because they've got so many cells possible, possibly transforming into cancer cells, but they don't do that. Mm. So elephants have some sort of cancer-resistant mechanism they have to have just to live as long and be as big as they are. Now, recently, we've discovered what's likely responsible for that. Um, and this was, again, this was medical doctors interested in cancer thinking outside the traditional laboratory animals. And what they discovered is if they looked at the elephant genome, so we have a lot of genes in our genome that are called tumor suppressors. These are genes that either stop cells from dividing, if it looks like they might be dividing out of control, or else they kill the cell. They cause the cell to start this suicide program that cells have. Now, over half of human cancers, this gene, which is called um, P53, um, is, is damaged. It's mutated. So it's no longer functional. So its protective effect that it normally has at suppressing tumor formation is gone. And that's one of the things that leads to us getting cancer later in life is that uh, all you need is a P53 mutation in the wrong cell at the wrong time. It turns out that when they looked at the genome of the elephants, African elephants, the biggest of the elephants, have 20 copies of that P53 gene. So if they get one that mutates and is no longer viable, they have 19 others. So that's an ingenious kind of solution that evolution has come up with, allowing something as large as an elephant to live as long as 80 years. Now that's not the kind of thing that it's obvious how you would translate that to humans unless you are going to advocate to go into the human genome and tinker with the human genome. And I think there are many ethical issues uh, about that. But that just shows the innovative solutions that nature can come up with. So as we study other large, long-lived animals, all, by virtue of their size and their longevity, have to have much, much better cancer resistance mechanisms than we do. 
we're likely to find some that do have some translational uh, potential. I'm thinking of some of the whales that make elephants look like pygmies, uh, and they live much longer than elephants as well. So I'm thinking there's a world out there of possibilities for finding ways to uh, slow down aging, to prevent aging-related diseases that we haven't yet begun to explore. And in your research for Methuselah Zoo, what discovery surprised you the most? Um, I think what surprised me the most when I was writing Methuselah Zoo is how common it is for us to have a very poor idea of how long animals live. Um, you would think that we would have a pretty good idea because we can draw these graphs of increasing size, increasing longevity, and put hundreds of species on there. But it turns out for a surprising numbers of those, we, we really only have the vaguest idea of how long uh, they live. And I, let me just give you an example with something that I suspect everyone would think we know very, very well. And that's how long our closest relative chimpanzees live. So I, because I used to work in essentially a zoo, because the, the animal compound that I worked in when I worked in Hollywood, we had over 50 lions, we had a dozen tigers, we had an elephant, a couple of bears, some mountain lions, we basically had a mech. I'm very sort of uh, sensitive to the issues that zoos have. They have issues of what species they're gonna have, do they have the right facilities, do they know the exact diet? So for years and years and years, our closest relative was assumed to live no longer than 59 years. So that's roughly half as long as the longest lived human, right? That's always seemed too short to me. It seems like we've only been separated for roughly 6 million years. How could you get a doubling of this? Well, it turns out I was on an airplane one time and I picked up a newspaper that somebody had left there. I started reading about this chimpanzee that was 72 years old. And it was a movie chimpanzee. That also got my uh, attention. Now, when I saw the 72 years, I immediately thought it was a lie because almost anything you hear about a movie animal is likely to be a lie designed to make the animal look more interesting and the trainer look, look better. Now, I knew that because I've been involved uh, in a lot of that. So. One of the way that animal ages get mixed up is when animals move from one facility to another because the birth records either may, may not go with it or they may get lost. Even in my own house, by the way, I have what may be the oldest um, yellow-headed Amazon parrot in the world. I have a parrot that is 72 years old and there's none of that species have been reported to live longer. But this is an important point. That's only true if I can believe how old the parrot was when I got it from the previous owner. They told me it was 35. So assuming that was accurate, then I now have a 72-year-old parrot, but it may not have been. Hmm. So I asked that guy, I called the trainer. I, I didn't know this particular movie trainer, but uh, I knew some of the people who knew him. And I said, how do you know? You know, how many owners has Cheetah had? His name was Cheetah, obviously. And he said, oh, it's only two owners. My uncle, 
He's a movie trainer. Maybe you heard of him. Uh, I hadn't. But he brought this chimpanzee over from Africa when it was a baby. And so he had it his whole life. And when, uh, uh, in his will, he said that I should inherit it if something happened to him. So when he died, I inherited it. So I thought, well, that sounds, that sounds pretty reasonable. So I started telling everybody in the aging community, huh, we've way underestimated the age of chimpanzees can live to. There's a 72-year-old one that's very well documented, and it's still alive. And in the meantime, cheetahs at 73, 74, 75, there's always having a birthday, and you can buy paintings that cheetahs made and signed, and, and, and this guy is making lots and lots of money off a of cheetah. That should have, <laughs> that should have alerted my nonsense uh, 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 receptors right there, uh, but it didn't. So while I'm telling everybody on this, somebody uh, from one of our national newspapers decides to go out and do a book on this chimpanzee. And that project lasted for about a week. And the reason is, within a week, this person had figured out that this whole story was bunk. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I hadn't really bought a lot. I did, I did some work to try to validate it. Like, for instance, I said, well, what movies has Cheetah been in? Well, he's on all the original Tarzan movies. So I went and I, I bought all the original <coughs> Tarzan movies and saw whether or could I, I could identify him. Now, in movie animals, one character may be played by many, many different animals, and there were at least four or five different animals of both sexes that were called cheetah in the Tarzan movies. But I was looking at the whorls inside the ears, and I convinced myself that one of those animals could be the same one that was, was here. Well, this person had gone out and discovered that at, at the time that, that this person is supposed to have gone to Africa, and flown back with this baby chimp, there were no flights between Africa mm-hmm. and the U.S., so it couldn't possibly have happened. And then the last movie that this animal was in, I'd watched the movie because he told me this is the last movie. The animal would have been uh, about 35 years old in that movie, and I didn't see the animal. <laughs> the only thing I saw was a, a, a baby chimp. Those are usually the ones you see in movies, they're babies, because adults are, are, are too strong and too dangerous. But it was such a bad movie that I thought I must have blinked because mm-hmm. he wouldn't make something up that could be so easily disproved. And I couldn't bear to watch the movie. Anyway, it turns out this was all bunk. And they even, this researcher even uh, looked up some animal trainers who knew the trainer that had died. And I even knew some of those trainers. And they go, oh, no, that animal, he got him off of the Santa Monica Pier in you know 1968. And so it turned out it was all bunk. And, it was those sorts of stories that made me realize that we actually know relatively little about how long animals can live, even though we have lots of them in zoos and research facilities. Actually, what I said about that one is that in Hollywood, even the chimpanzees lie about their age. Uh, but in fact, um, field researchers were saying, no, 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 we think we have animals that are about that old or even older in nature. And so there might be something about animal, about chimpanzees in captivity that we just don't know the best way to take care of them yet. So I'd have to say right now that even our closest relative, we only have the vaguest idea of how long they can live. Uh, it turns out that my wife is a veterinary uh, dentist, and she once got asked to do some dental work on some 
uh, chimpanzees in a, in a research setting. And she said that they just had horrible, horrible periodontal disease, every one that she had. So it could be something small like that is really limiting the longevity of animals in captivity. And we really don't know about it. Again, it's why it makes more sense in many respects to study animals in their natural habitat. And do we have any idea whether, whether the bigger dinosaurs also lived longer? Do you want to know how long they lived? Yeah, well, surprisingly, we do know a bit about that. And that's because um, in seasonal environments, particularly in cold-blooded animals, there actually will be variation in the rate at which new bone is created. And what that does is it causes rings in the bone. And in many, many dinosaur skeletons, these rings are visible. Now, if you just ask me, for instance, how long does Tyrannosaurus rex live? Given its size, it's about the same size as an African elephant, okay? Given its size and given the fact that we think it's cold-blooded, we're not sure it might actually have been warm-blooded. It should probably live at least 80 years, maybe, maybe into its hundreds. It turns out that the oldest T-Rex that anybody has found so far is only 28 years old. Oh, wow. Now, that's remarkably short. Uh, I, I, now, let me give a caveat there. We have our hands on only a few T-Rex skeletons, right? It's only been, you know, less than 50 have ever been looked at. So we might be getting a, a, a bad idea because of the low numbers and the fact that uh, young animals die a lot and young animals are likely going to be more numerous out there than older animals. So it may be that they live a lot longer than that. But from what we do know, we don't know of any Tyrannosaurus that lived longer than about um, 28 years. In fact, the oldest dinosaur that's been a, a, of any species, and this has been one of these huge vegetarian dinosaurs, um, is into its mid-40s. So it looks like, from what we can gather, dinosaurs, despite the fact that at least some of them were cold-blooded, at least some of them must have lived where it was cold, and to their great size, did not seem to live very long. Far shorter, in fact, than some of our large, cold-blooded reptiles today. You know, whereas giant tortoises can live, you know, probably into their 170s, 180s. Dinosaurs seem to be short lot. It's, it's, it's a mystery. Maybe it's only because we know so little about so few species, but maybe there was something about dinosaur life that made them short lived. Well, this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, my next research project will really be to start a study of humans, which I've never done before. Um, but um, the place I live, Alabama in the States, uh, has a very poor health. It's got a lower life expectancy than Mexico. And I'm concerned about that. And I want to do something to see if we can figure out what we can do to make things better. So I'm actually starting uh, a, a human study here where we're going to be looking at how lifestyle factors affect ill health among the most disadvantaged people 
in Alabama. My animal work, I'm really still, one of my key interests is in sex differences. One of the things we didn't talk about is why women always live longer than men. And uh, that's a really interesting point. My next writing project is something very, very different. I have another book that came out about the same time called To Err is Human, To Admit It Is Not, and other essays. And it's just a variety of short essays that I've written on a variety of topics. But one of the things I've been interested in for more than 20 years is the way that science is used in the criminal justice system. And I have had a book in the planning phases for a long, long time to really lay out if the justice system were designed by scientists instead of by lawyers, what might it look like and how much better would it be at determining who's guilty and who's innocent? So that's probably my next writing project will be to finally get down to that book that I've been working on off and on for 30 years. I have a reasonable amount of it written already. So very different directions that I'm going now. But like I say, it keeps life fresh if you find, if you follow new interests. And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Um, well, there's my website, which is stephenaustead.com. Um, I had excerpts from Thuz Lazoo been published in The Atlantic magazine, and another excerpt has been published in Salon. And then, of course, you can always go to the MIT Press website or any of the big booksellers' websites and see about not only Methuselah Zoo, but other books uh, that I've written. And I'll, I try to keep things up to date on my website. So if I'm giving talks or if I'm uh, coming out with uh, new publications, I try, to, I try to have it there. And I'm also somewhat active on social media. So if you follow me on Twitter or on Facebook, I will say what I'm up to currently. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Galena.